And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but, well, by now you know you can call me Dave. And this is the podcast dedicated to the comic book adventures of Daredevil, Marvel Comics, Lawyer by Day, Superhero by Night, or whichever, there's no schedule for superheroing. And this week we continue the saga of Daredevil's early days in the pages of Daredevil Yellow number 2, which probably brings up a lot of questions. Such as, Dave, with the second season about to hit Netflix this coming Friday, why aren't you covering something tied to the show? Where's the Punisher? Where's Elektra? Where's the Hand? Well, the simple answer lies in the realm of the hiatus. Last week I mentioned that I had some creative issues, and that boiled down to a wanting to really cover a lot of different things, but wanting to cover them all at once. That caused a huge conflict to me. There was the material that I should cover. A lot of episodes were made or half-made. They would get trashed. It was just a mess. At one point in my frustration, I was even going to reboot the show entirely, cover every issue of Daredevil from issue one forward, and it just kind of got to the point where I came back to my senses and looked at the premise of the show, the original premise. And just a tip, creatively, it always helps to come back to the beginning and remind yourself of what you set out to do at the onset, and for me, it was pretty simple. Talk about Daredevil comics. That was, is, and will always be the premise of the show, and my over-planning kind of shot that in the foot, and it took all of the fun out of it for a while. So what I resolved to do was plan things in small chunks, such as six episode runs on Daredevil Yellow, what we're doing here, and then find out what I wanted to do next, and just let the content be whatever is in front of me at that time. And at the time I made that decision, what was in front of me, where my mind and heart were, and are, is Daredevil Yellow. So I followed that rabbit hole, and we'll watch how it plays out. And that's why we don't have Daredevil vs. Punisher on the docket, or any Daredevil and Elektra stories, and it's why I don't have a definitive plan to do a special covering Daredevil season two. When the first season hit, there were a lot of podcasts that popped up to cover it, and they did so in far more detail than I did or want to. And for me, I just want to remain within the comics. I don't necessarily want to uproot my current plan. And to come back to the mindset of planning in chunks or even individual episodes, this is going to lead us to cover a great variety of eras, a lot of different creative teams, new types of material. And from the feedback I've gleaned from listeners, that's something that they liked. So that's the long answer to the simple question. And with season two hitting this Friday, it seemed easier to address that now. Either way, we're still days away from Season 2, and here we have a comic book to cover. But first, I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break for Anime Freaks, a show right here on the Two True Freaks Network, and then I will return to talk Daredevil Yellow, number two. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Or maybe... Dragon Flame! How about... Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientist and engineer spent the next ten years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Oh! 
Star Blazers. Or this. The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Team, grappler ships dead ahead. It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it. Or. If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of. And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under Two True Freaks Presents Anime Freaks. When we left off last week, the modern-day Daredevil was writing letters to the recently deceased Karen Page, working through his feelings of fear and doubt. This trek into his mind took him to Fogwell's gym where he remembered the final days of Jack Murdoch while Matt was studying at Columbia Law. After the untimely death of Jack Murdoch at the hands of Sweeney, aka the Fixer and his henchman, Slade, Matt sought justice when the two slipped through the legal system. So while he and Foggy began establishing their law firm, Matt created a yellow and brown costume and a new identity of Daredevil to seek justice outside the system. Which brings us right to the doorstep of Daredevil Yellow number 2, the September 2001 issue. As is the case with every issue in this series, the cover is by Tim Sale. This time we have Jack Murdock working a punching bag in the confines of Fogwell's gym as the sky shows Daredevil, very apparition-like, matching the pose. I'm not gonna lie here, this is my favorite cover of the six issues, mainly because of the use of Matt Hollingsworth's colors. The cool blues on the interior and the hot yellow outside set a very clear feeling in my head. For me, it is a warm spring morning and Jack is going at it with the breeze coming through the large open windows and the sounds of the city are slowly rising. Of course, the symbolism is clear. Jack is within everything that Daredevil does and Daredevil is retroactively looming over the events and the memories. But the kicker is in the details. The thermos on the bench, the pipes on the ceiling, and the poster on the wall. The same one we saw in tatters when modern day Matt visited Fogwell's gym last issue. Simply put, love this cover. Nuff said. Within this cover is a story entitled The Measure of a Man, written by Jeff Loeb with art by Tim Sale, letters by Wes Abbott, and colors by Matt Hollingsworth. You can easily find the whole series reprinted in Daredevil Yellow, a trade paperback or hardcover, also digitally through the Marvel app and Comixology in both individual issue form and collected form, and of course on Marvel Unlimited. And diving into Daredevil Yellow number two, the newly minted Daredevil crashes into Fogwell's gym and introduces himself to the sounds of laughter. But the underworld scum in the gym's second floor aren't laughing long as Daredevil turns their card game into a beatdown. 
Daredevil's main targets, Sweeney, a.k.a. The Fixer, and Slade are next as the Man Without Fear leaps at them and knocks them down a set of steps to the first floor. While The Fixer gets the hell out of Dodge, Daredevil concentrates on Slade, beating the man, then pointing the thug's own gun at him. Daredevil has only one demand for Slade, testify. And with that, we're going to put this on pause for a moment and talk about these opening pages. And let's start at the logical place, the very beginning. The issue opens with a page of Daredevil announcing himself after just busting through the window of Fogwell's gym, the broken glass window behind him. For one thing, this makes me smile because last issue, as Matt was looking down at the gym in the modern red suit era, it had a large board over this very window because of this very event. And I like that kind of detail and thoughtfulness in storytelling. But secondly, when comparing this to the entrance in Daredevil number one, this seems way more exciting than Daredevil simply strolling in and saying, hey guys, I'm here for the fixer. It's considerably less polite, but far angrier. Looking back at Daredevil number one, though, there was a twist to keep in mind. In those opening sequences, the fact that Daredevil was blind was meant to dazzle and amaze, M. Night Shyamalan style. Here, that cat is out of the bag, and there's no flashback, so we see a bit more of an aggressive side to Daredevil. However, that brings up an interesting idea. Remember that the whole of this series is told from the vantage point of Matt looking back, which means it may not be a reliable narrative of what actually occurred. With that, the modern Matt has a clear idea of who Daredevil is and how he operates a distinctive identity with a definite method of attack. I wonder if the modern Matt is overlaying some of the more refined and honed aspects of Daredevil onto the the wet-behind-the-ears version. After all, in Daredevil number one, we have Matt outside of Fogwell's gym about to suit up and go in, and this is where he says this will be a test to see if he is as good as he thinks he is. That implies to me a bit of self-doubt. And that would be a reasonable response for a stunt like this, where the yellow version of Daredevil is all swagger and bravado. That doesn't stop the card-playing goons within Fogwells from laughing at him. But even with Marvel's sliding 10-year timeline, superheroes would be new at this point. Sure, there were costume adventures in World War II, but they kept to the shadows, basically urban legends at best. The Fantastic Four hadn't been around that long, so they were maybe even looked at as a publicity stunt, while other heroes were starting to trickle in. Add to that that these guys weren't likely to be up on current events. And they're cocky. They're criminals. They're part of an element that is untouchable to some extent. They're used to getting their way through intimidation. So when a costume jerk comes crashing into their window, that combination of unfamiliarity with the superhero element and their own conceit logically results in laughter. To that end, there's a bit of a chorus that starts here and repeats. Daredevil talks of the bullies in Hell's Kitchen taunting him and laughing at him. That will come back a bit later in the episode, so please just make note of that for a moment. Another bit within Matt's inner monologue slash letter is that Jack was the greatest guy in the world, and he didn't want Matt to grow up like him. This is sweet. Naive, but sweet. As I displayed last week with Jack making what I see as a selfish choice in not taking the dive, ballsy, yes, but selfish, Jack isn't exactly father of the year. But he was a father. He did raise Matt and keep food in Matt's belly and clothes on his back. And he loved his son. I won't dispute that. I won't take that away. And Matt loved him. What I don't see and what Matt isn't seeing either, no pun intended, is any real attempt by Jack to move past what he was. For as much as he talked about getting up from the mat, Jack never really did. He wallowed in self-pity and was in constant pursuit of his glory days as a boxer. He never attempted to further his education or change himself. In a general sense, he did right by Matt, but he never tried to go beyond what he was. Would he have exceeded? Who knows? But as far as what we have seen on the page, Jack was stuck. So Jack was, in my opinion, right to push Matt to achieve something and not grow up like him. Basically, do the opposite of what he did. 
Matt is just so blinded by love for his father and the admiration he holds for Jack that he can't see that. And with the nature of Jack's death and Matt's course of action because of that, he never will. But here are his targets, the Fixer and Slade, the ones responsible for all of this. This sequence of Daredevil leaping across the room and knocking them down the steps omits an awkward fight from Daredevil number one. In that original telling, Daredevil literally had the rug pulled out from under him after being knocked out a window and coming back in. This is far more graceful and more practiced and slightly more aggressive. And that idea of Matt overlaying the more modern Daredevil onto the past really stands out right here. How much cooler is it for Daredevil to pounce on the duo like a wild bobcat rather than a slow, awkward, drawn-out fight that didn't go his way? Another change from the original telling is Slade staying at the gym while the Fixer got away. In Daredevil number one, they didn't split up until they got to the subway station. I gotta confess, this seems a bit more plausible and lends itself to the emotion boiling below the scene. It also seems to take just a bit of a cue from Man Without Fear. If you'll recall in Man Without Fear, Matt baits Slade to face him one-on-one in the boxing ring. Then he proceeds to brutally beat Slade within an inch of his life. Here the beating is more skilled, less brutal, but more personal. And then Daredevil holds that gun up to Slade's head and demands that he confess. And that gun is a key element. It's Slade's gun. The weapon that killed Jack Murdock, and this counts for two reasons. One is the obvious irony that Daredevil is turning that weapon back on Slade, the very device that produced Daredevil, brought him into being. Secondly, and more important, it's the murder weapon. It's the damning piece of evidence that is missing to bring Slade in for the murder of Jack Murdock. It's the trump card, thanks to ballistics. This alone is a victory for Daredevil, but it won't be enough. Slade and the gun are the tools that killed Jack, the Fixer, and whoever is above the Fixer are to blame. And the Fixer is getting away, so let's return to the story as Daredevil pursues the Fixer. Daredevil sets his sight on the fleeing Sweeney, trailing him for three blocks through the streets of Hell's Kitchen. Daredevil finally has Sweeney cornered in a subway station, but the criminal won't stop running and leaps onto the tracks to escape into the dark tunnels. Daredevil follows, but the pursuit ends up being short-lived as Sweeney's heart attacks him before Daredevil can lay a hand on him. Sweeney falls down, dead on the tracks, leaving Jack's killer punished and Daredevil in the darkness with his task finished. And that's a good place to stop and discuss this section of the issue. Where Daredevil is leaping across the roof of a truck here and sliding down the handrail of the subway steps, this chase sequence replaces an extremely awkward one from Daredevil number one. In the original, Daredevil changed to Matt Murdock, walked down the street after Fixer and Slade walked, mind you, and then changed back to Daredevil before entering the subway station. So, redundant much? This version moves much faster and is much more dynamic. And here is where Sale and Hollingsworth bring it home. You have this backdrop that is gorgeous. The muddy brown bricks in the subway and the fine detail of the tile bring this station to life. Look closely at the tile. Thanks to the redonkulous amount of work, they actually come off as truly reflective surfaces. This place feels dark, damp, and cold coming right off the page at you. And you know me and my fascination with maps. Which subway station would that be? Well, my best guess, based on the location of Hell's Kitchen and the stations that run closest, this is the 50th Street Station located at 50th Street and 8th Avenue. Now, in the story, there's not a lot of reference to that. Here it's made to look much older than most stations in the area, but that location is the most logical spot for this confrontation, which means that Fogwell's gym would be about three blocks away, likely west. And Daredevil mentions, once again, the smell of the Fixer's cheap cigar aided in tracking him, which is also referenced last issue as a scent on Jack's money, a telling scent. However, if Matt hadn't met the Fixer as he is meeting him here, 
he wouldn't know that smell. Which means Matt remembering the smell on Jack's money is the result of hindsight. To bring this back on the table, Matt is still putting himself on trial. Judging his part in the death of Jack Murdoch and that piece should tell him that he couldn't have known this was coming. How could he know that the money was the fixers if he didn't know what the scent was? But that isn't enough. It does bring a big question to the table. Is being Daredevil a penance? Here we see Daredevil miss the chance to hit the fixer, something that he laments as Sweeney falls down dead, but with Sweeney dead, Daredevil's sole mission is over. He finished what he set out to do, and yet here we have Daredevil years later remembering how he came to be. So let me submit this idea. With Sweeney fallen, ironically caused by his own vices, his smoking, the thug life, or whatever you want to call it, his criminal element, this means Daredevil was not the one to take the fixer down. Almost as if his work isn't done. Does that affect Matt? Maybe these events are telling us that Matt feels he should have had the foresight to stop them, that he should have been on guard. So he decides to constantly be on guard, to not let that guard drop for a moment for fear that he will fail another person and they might pay the ultimate price. Perhaps this is what Matt is putting on trial on his head. After all, being Daredevil has, at least from the vantage point that he is at, cost him Karen, Electra, Heather Glenn, and her father. Maybe what Matt is afraid of is being the cause for this strife, not the cure. If he was in some form responsible for Jack, it becomes his penance to redeem himself rather than avenge Jack. And in Matt's mind, there may be a lot to redeem himself for. Much like he went through the agony of Bullseye's killings after Matt saved Bullseye's life, he felt that one was on his shoulders. Likewise, the lives that were cost, if Daredevil fails to take action, they're on Matt's shoulders as well. Coupled with the lives cost or ruined because he took action as Daredevil. This means either way Matt fails, and he has to keep going. Being Daredevil, not being Daredevil, it's a no-win scenario, even in the best of times. But the fear, and I use that word intentionally, the fear of inaction, which we see here, outweighs the cost of suiting up and remaining Daredevil. To do nothing is to be damned, and to take action is at least more noble. And within that nobility, there's a hint of redemption for not trying to save his father. Now, I've kind of proven that the idea that Matt didn't save his father was preposterous. He didn't know what was happening, at least not to the extent that it was happening. But remember this, until born again, Matt believed that his mother had died when he was just an infant. That had to have an effect on Matt. At the very least, he felt as responsible for Jack's well-being as Jack felt for Matt's well-being. The loss of Maggie affected them both, just differently. Despite the fact that she wasn't present, Maggie represented a loss for both, and a bond between them, a line of connection. Perhaps Matt grew up with a bit of a responsibility on his shoulders for Maggie's supposed death, that his presence caused hers to cease somehow. With that in the subconscious mind of a young Matt, it forms into a very strong palette for this kind of thought process to develop and come to a quiet presence in the back of Matt's mind. So Daredevil could be a penance for Matt not taking action and a self-replicating penance at that. He's too scared of the consequences of quitting. However, I do want to be clear this is only a theory and one of a few that I'll be presenting for you to chew on. Let's be honest here though, there likely won't be a definitive answer as to why Matt keeps putting on the costume but it's a damn good discussion topic. To that end, let's check out this last segment of the book so I may present another take on Matt's decision to remain Daredevil after these events. After Daredevil drags Sweeney back to the station to the waiting police officers and introduces himself as Daredevil, he heads back to his normal life as Matt Murdock. While Matt has been playing superhero, Foggy has been interviewing candidates for their new secretary, and that has been a nightmare. 
But one voice calls out like a ray of sunshine on a cloudy day, and by the time Matt gets changed and gets back to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, Foggy has hired their new secretary. And in the final page of the issue, Matt meets somebody who will be extremely important to his life and Daredevil's, Karen Page. And that wraps issue number two. Let's talk about this section and the issue overall. Here we have another scenario to place in the fold. Much like the penance angle, Matt presents another point of view. As he is dragging the fixer back to the station, Matt recalls that Karen was the first person to call him the man without fear and he liked it. He adds to this that he is so much like his dad. What does that mean? Matt says he reveled in that name and he was, is, so much like his dad. Maybe there is a sense of ego to this. The same kind of ego that would lead a boxer to make a fatal choice to win a fight. Matt grew up bullied and somewhat cut off from others his age. After he was blinded, many pitied him or treated him like a freak since they didn't know how to deal with his blindness. Matt didn't hit any kind of social stride until he was at college, where he flourished and had a romance with Electra and a friendship with Foggy. Bear in mind, Matt is fresh out of law school as this first outing is taking place. For perhaps the first time, Matt feels in control. He doesn't have to hide his senses or be treated as a freak or a charity case. He's free. And of course, there's a certain degree of satisfaction to his deeds, something that serves his ego. Much like Jack lapped up the attention and validation of ranking up in the boxing world. Think about this. How many times have we seen Matt suit up and go swinging across the city when he's frustrated or go through an exercise routine in costume to work out any mental bugs? Quite a few. Being Daredevil can be a burden, but to be looked at as a superhero, to have thanks lavished on you, to have others fear and respect you, that's pretty enticing. Let's add a bit of fuel to this fire. Remember earlier in the episode when Daredevil was speaking about the neighborhood kids laughing at him? Here, that comes back into play as Daredevil stands before the police with Sweeney's body and Matt adds that they aren't laughing anymore. I hadn't really thought of this before, but Daredevil kind of has that element of revenge of the nerds to it, minus Booger and Lamar. This kid who has been on for so long, lost mother, washed up father, blindness, bullied for his devotion to his studies as Daredevil, that kid makes good. He gets the last laugh. Let's add the fact that he is now a lawyer, valedictorian of his class at Columbia Law and establishing his own firm. And all of this is the result of Matt's hard work. He also just kicked some underworld ass and impressed the cops. Who's laughing now, f***ers? Daredevil is a means to feel those moments of exhilaration and reward. It's a thrill to swing across the city and take on supervillains. It stokes the ego. But it's also a way for Matt to fight the bullies of the world, those jerks who prey on the innocent and terrorize those who are different. This idea that being Daredevil feeds the ego has to be put in with an admission. Matt's victimization as a kid led to a degree of isolation, insecurity, and fear. Some of this was shed in college since he came out of his shell. He didn't have to be scared of getting beaten up when he went outside anymore. And of course the isolation was relieved by connecting to others such as Foggy and Electra for, well, what that one was worth. And in the realm of studies, Matt was validated at Columbia. But there are still traces of that little boy, pent-up rage and resentment that still linger, and these acts offset that. Being Daredevil is a validation against the slings and arrows that Matt took. But pride comes before the fall. Maybe Matt's recognition of these traits is another piece of evidence in the trial of Daredevil that is going on in Matt's head. The flip side to that ego is events like Electra's death, Heather's death, and the one death that is most in Matt's focus right now, the fresh wound of Karen Page's death. Which brings us to the moment itself. Matt Murdock meets Karen Page. The main drive of Matt's narrative arrives. Curiously, Matt places meeting Karen after becoming Daredevil, but in Daredevil number one, Karen was already established as Nelson and Murdock's secretary before Matt put on the costume. 
While Matt is busy examining his guilt or his reasoning for being Daredevil, he seems to be potentially sidelining any role that Karen had in inspiring the superhero duds. Or maybe Karen Page is a more direct reason for Matt to remain Daredevil. And that is an idea best explored in the coming weeks. For now, let's render a final verdict on Daredevil Yellow number 2. The second issue, for as much as it generated some interesting ideas, suffered from the decompressed storytelling far more than the first issue. The fact that it has taken two full issues to cover what the first issue did in one, even omitting key elements of the origin, becomes very noticeable here. While Sale's art is gorgeous and Loeb allows him to really explore the visual space, it feels like this could have been reined in a bit and added some new elements to the story. Granted, this origin is very familiar and Loeb stays within it. Future issues really explore the unseen elements between the panels of the original stories and I wish that path had been taken here. But the smoothness that the attack on Fogwells was presented with was a treat and it removes some of the clumsier aspects of the original playing on the familiarity that readers have with Daredevil. And while this installment lacked the emotional punch of the first issue, the action moves it forward and made familiar ground fresh again, if only for a moment. And it is only now that the main subject of Matt's trip into the past arrives. Karen, the fulcrum on which this story rests. In many ways, the first two issues serve as a prologue to the main event and form a foundation for Loeb to really explore the relationship between Matt, Karen, and Daredevil. And if you're able to go in with these expectations, the issue comes off as a low-risk, high-reward installment in the use of colors and sales visually stunning portrayal of the characters. If nothing else, enjoy the detailed backgrounds of Foggy's office or the subway station. Those alone are worth the price of admission. So far, between these two issues, we have a nice opening salvo that could have benefited with some editing and streamlining, but managed to retain enough charm and visual flair to engage the reader. And now that we are invested, it only goes up from here. But that is that on Daredevil Yellow number two. Why don't we move on to the email segment of the show? This week's email is from Lucas Hunsaker. His subject line reads, Hey Dave. Hey Luke. Lucas's email reads, Hello Dave, my name is Luke, and I have been a longtime Daredevil fan, a longtime listener of your podcast. First off, great job. Was sad when you left, glad when you came back. I host a podcast, and when I get to talk Daredevil, my co-hosts usually have to pry the microphone away from me to get me to stop. I also was invited to speak on some Daredevil-related panels at the 2015 Salt Lake City Comic Con, and I was able to use some of the knowledge I obtained from listening to your show. As for your current series on the death of Gene DeWolf, this is a story that I had never heard before, and it is enthralling. I had to go pick it up, and now it's up there with some of my favorite stories ever. Again, thank you, and keep up the great work, Luke. Well, thank you, Lucas, uh, or Luke, whichever you prefer. First off, the fact that you mentioned the show's return almost makes it eerily contemporary if you think about it. As if you knew something that I didn't. Secondly, I'm actually really glad that you found the death of Gene DeWolf, and I'm glad that you love it. That's a win. As I mentioned last week, I was really worried about how those episodes would go over, but to hear that they are doing what I hoped they would do and leading people to that material and getting people on board with it, that feels like a huge victory. Thirdly, what is it like to be on a panel? I asked because I've never been on one, and that's mainly because around my area there aren't very many big comic cons. There are some gaming cons, things like that, but nothing that would match up with this show. But I'm really glad I could help with that panel, and hopefully it helps others to find and enjoy Daredevil a bit more. Good job on that. Finally, to be honest with you, is there a reason to stop talking about Daredevil? I mean, once he's on the table, I haven't found a reason to stop. So whenever you get that mic, don't let go. Thanks for dropping a line to the show, and I do apologize for the tardiness in getting this email on the air. 
And if you want to drop a line to the show like Lucas, the email address is still mail at daredevilpodcast.com. And why not rate the show on iTunes, helping other people to notice it? It only takes a moment, but it stays on my heart forever, like a tattoo. Yeah, that was a bad Jordan Sparks reference. But, you know, here's a better question. Whatever happened to Jordan Sparks? Time to get on Google for me, which means it's the end of another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Next week, Hustling Pool, Helen Keller Jokes, The Fantastic Four, and a Femme Fatale enter the hero's life in Daredevil Yellow number 3. Until then, happy binging this Friday, and while you binge, bear in mind, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder, and you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right, simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at 2TrueFreaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group. All rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.